أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى عليه وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم sisters and brothers and anyone who may uh, be listening to this podcast okay uh, this will be our last session here at uh, UMIS uh, at Melbourne Uni for this year um, and our topic uh, of discussion will be a short section from the 28th flash, which is actually the same flash that we read from last week. Um, this part of it is on page 374 of um, at least my copy here, um, and it commences with uh, the title, A Question. Okay, so what's that question? It's just this. How can incarceration in hell for an infinite duration in return for unbelief for a short duration, be justice. Okay, so that's our topic. Um, as I mentioned uh, uh, when I came into the room, our aim in discussing this will not be merely to, um, you know, have they, uh, you know, present a theodicy, you know, um, say how we'd respond to, you know, the opponents of um, this position, this Muslim position. Rather, it will be, you know, in addition to that at least, it will be to um, maybe tie together some of the key points that we uh, discussed throughout the year. You know, certainly not everything that we discussed, but at least, you know, a couple of uh, the most significant things that, you know, hopefully um, sort of we can take away uh, from these sessions and, you know, think about in the break, uh, inshallah, in preparation for, for next year, if we're together again, inshallah. Um, so without any further ado, let me just read. I've got two little paragraphs here, okay? It's a very short section. And it continues here with the answer to that question, okay? The answer. It's going to get a little bit mathematical here, but don't get... The mathematics here is, in a sense, metaphorical, so don't get too um, hung up on that. Um, the answer. Reckoning a year to be 365 days... The law of justice requires for a one-minute murder 7,884,000 minutes of imprisonment. So, since one minute's unbelief is like a thousand murders, right, and that's a key point there, a minute's unbelief is like a thousand murders. According to the law of human... Yeah, it's like a thousand murders. According to the law of human justice, someone who lives a life of 20 years in unbelief and dies in that state deserves imprisonment for 57,201,200,000,000 years. In the Turkish, it's like 57 trillion something something. Anyway, it's been translated here uh, a little bit differently. Um, anyway, so a long, a long number of uh, years, right? A long, long number of years. It may be understood from this how conformable with divine justice is the verse. I happen to have the Arabic here. Khalidina uh, fiha abada. Okay. They will dwell therein forever. Okay, so just how conformable with divine justice is that verse? Now, the reason for the connection between these two numbers so far from one another is this. Since murder and unbelief 
are both destruction and aggression. They have an effect on others. A murder which takes one minute negates, on average, at least 15 years of the victim's life. So the murderer is in, the murderer is in prison in their place. While, since one minute of unbelief denies a thousand and one divine names and denigrates their inscriptions, violates the rights of the universe and denies its perfections and gives the lie to innumerable evidences of divine unity and rejects their testimony, the unbeliever is cast down to the lowest of the low, the pit of hell, for more than a thousand years and dwells in imprisonment. So dwells there is khalidina, dwells in imprisonment. Right. You happy with that translation? Is that is that right? Okay. Okay, and he signs off Said Nursi. Alright. So that's the that's as much as uh, we'll read. Just in just the key sort of idea there. The key idea is just this like, you know, in responding to um yeah, let's just start off by saying this, right? You know, in responding to the person who objects in, in the following way. So here's the standard position in Islam that uh, if you die as a kafir, right? So if in fact you are a kafir, right? Like like a person might look like a kafir to me, right? But it might turn out that he's not. We're talking here about the genuine kafir, right? The genuine unbeliever. Right? Um, and there's a whole discussion that deserves to be had about who counts as a kafir, all right? Because you know, not everybody who does not believe in Allah or does not believe in Islam, right? Not every one of those persons might necessarily count as a kafir, right? Contrary to what maybe many Muslims think. Um, uh, scholars like Imam Ghazali, even Bediuzzaman, they've had discussions, right, uh, about this. Yeah, not everybody who doesn't believe in Islam gets to count as a kafir. Uh, you count as a kafir under certain uh, circumstances. In particular, you need to be culpable for your lack of belief. Yeah, you need to be culpable for it. Uh, you, it needs to be the case, for example, that you didn't receive the message of Islam, or even if you received it, you didn't receive it in the right way, and so on. So our scholars have laid down some, you know, stringent requirements. Right? Not, you can't just point the finger at every non-Muslim, in other words, and assume that that person is definitely uh, a kafir. All right, but that's a whole other discussion. We're talking here about the person that is in fact the kafir. All right, so let's say that a person fulfills those requirements and is in fact the kafir, is in fact you know a culpable unbeliever. Um, that kind of person, what does it say? They dwell in hell forever. Okay. Now, having said that, there are some scholars, in particular um, Ibn Taymiyyah and his. Um, uh, student, uh, whose name I forget, uh, who's his key? Uh, yeah, Ibn al Qayyim, and there's another one. Uh, yeah, not that one. Um, uh, I'm thinking of someone else, but yeah. So, uh, no, not him either. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, certainly Ibn, Ibn Taymiyyah and other scholars too. Okay, so there, there is a minority view in the religion that says that no, um, they don't actually, that their punishment at least does not last forever. All right. Even if they remain in uh, 
a realm other than paradise forever, right? You know, even if they remain in hell forever, that hell, you know, perhaps is transformed and so on. So, there, you know, there are other views. Uh, like even Bedusman accepts that for most persons who dwell in um, hell, the initial severity of the punishment eventually abates, right? So that, yeah, over time... Yeah, there's an abatement in their punishment. Does the abatement continue? That's the separate question. But certainly even Beduzaman accepts that that happens. Right? Um, so other scholars, you know, sort of take that to what they feel is its logical conclusion to say that, look, in the fullness of, you know, time, maybe in millions and billions of years' time, uh, that, yeah, you know, um, hell ceases to be a place of punishment as we know it at least, you know. Uh, it, it, yeah, there ceases to be the fire that burns, for example, and so on. Um, so there's that minority view, but the the standard view is not that. The standard view is that yeah, you know they you commit a crime in a finite period of time. Like what's the average lifetime, right? The average adult life is what you know about fifty years. Yeah, right. If we die at seventy, you know we're 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 not adults for the first fifteen or twenty of that. You know, 50, 60 years. So in fifty to sixty years, on average, you commit an offence which warrants an infinitely enduring punishment. That's the standard position. Now, the immediate response to the person who objects to that and says, no, it doesn't seem fair. They commit the crime in a finite period, yet the punishment lasts forever. What Bedizamon's trying to describe here, like, you know, through these big numbers, is that it's not so much the time that's important, but rather it's the severity of the offence, all right? Because, look, a person can commit a murder or a rape or a child molestation or anything like that in a relatively short time, right? In one minute or one second or, you know, uh, a few minutes or whatever, right? Some short period. But do we say, oh, look, hey, man, you only took a minute to commit the murder, therefore, you know, your punishment must only be... You know, 10 minutes, no, we don't think like that, do we? We say that's a severe uh, crime, right? so that your punishment is uh, enduring. In fact, in... Bedouzman's going to say elsewhere in the Dissale, uh, in fact, what, w what we do sometimes here, even as human beings, right? even under human justice, right? human legal systems... Assalamu alaikum, come on in, come on. Thanks, alaikum salam. You know, even in uh, human justice systems, what we sometimes do is do the equivalent of imprisoning someone forever, right? In the sense that what we do is that we incarcerate them until they die, don't we, right? There are some persons who don't ever get out of jail um, or uh, they stay in jail for most of their useful life. Right? They don't get out until they're you know, old and not able to achieve anything anymore. Um, so that's kind of... You know, like, let's pretend we don't believe in God and we think that the only life you've got is here. Uh, to imprison someone for all of that is more or less equivalent, isn't it, to imprisoning someone forever, in a sense. So, yeah, it's not at all important how long it takes to commit the crime. What's important is the severity of the offence. So, Bedouzaman sort of leaves it there, more or less. And then, well, he does say, he does talk about what it really means to commit unbelief. Okay, he just touches on it because he's talked about it in other parts of the Risalinur, and here is merely reiterating it. Um, he talks in particular here about 
unbelief being, right? a denial of a thousand and one divine names and a denigration of their inscriptions, a violation of the rights of the universe right? and a denial of its perfections and so on, right? giving the lie to the innumerable evidences of divine unity, a rejection of their testimony and so on. So, you know, he goes over that, you know, in, in, in broad brushstrokes. What we'll aim to do now is to sort of understand a little bit, especially given what we've already said, you know, in previous discussions, in previous weeks, just what a severe offence it is. Right? What does it mean to uh, deny Allah right? in circumstances where you're a genuine kafir? So again, the genuine kafir is not someone who's done this accidentally. Hey, uh, you know, I've reasoned, like, let's pretend. I've reasoned as carefully as I can. I've not caved into my ego or my uh, nafs, you know, my instinctual soul. I've not caved into that and sort of found a way to fool myself. I've not done that. I've... Uh, reasoned carefully and honestly, you know, I've been honest to myself um, in how I thought about the matter, uh, so that I've not fooled myself or anyone. Um, and after all of that, look, I just don't see the evidence for God. Uh, we're not talking about that kind of person, right? We're talking about the person who, yeah, the message of Allah's existence or the truth of Islam or whatever religion, right? Whatever of the genuine religions. The truth of that has reached them in the right way, right? in a way where it was very much open to him to accept it, but yet he denied it. right? And in that sense, he's committed kufr, which is to cover up the truth. So he's quite deliberately, right, uh, in circumstances where he's quite uh, culpable, he's covered up that truth. Right. So, yeah, there's no accident, there's no mistake here. That this person is very much themselves responsible for their own lack of belief. They're not going to be able to point the finger at, at Allah or anybody else on the Day of Judgment and say, look, it's not my fault you know, that I didn't believe. You've got no right to incarcerate me in hell for this because, look, you know, uh, my not believing wasn't my fault. No, the person who's a kafir is not in that category. This is the person who deserves their incarceration. Right? So what, is that? what has that person done? What does Allah do? What does, when Allah creates uh, the universe and this person, this kafir, right? actually what he does right, is he, uh, it's, it's perhaps the greatest, the greatest imaginable act of compassion. All right? Because this is what's going on. This is what this person is throwing back in Allah's face. Quite deliberately, right? quite knowingly. Allah is a being of infinite beauty and perfection. And what he wishes to do is to make that beauty known and experienced by us created beings. Us beings that have the faculties to experience that being's beauty. He creates us, gives us certain faculties with which we're able to know him. We're able to experience every kind of beauty that he manifests in this universe. We're able to, for example, eat and taste delicious foods. We're able to walk through a park and smell beautiful flowers. We're able to have relations with our partners and our friends and our family. Right? We're able to love uh, and so on. We're able to do all of this. And in doing all of that, in each and every case, what we're doing is we're coming to know some aspect of Allah's beauty, as we've discussed on many occasions in these sessions. This person 
he's in a sense throwing that back in Allah's face. Okay. What Allah wants to do is he wants this person to enjoy his beauty, but this person has refused. Right? In what sense? How has he done so? Because the, worries, the worry here is going to be that, look, how can you compare something like a murder or a rape or a child molestation right, with just a, the mental act of not believing in something? Right? How are the two equal? Okay? Um, we're going to see, inshallah, throughout the course of this discussion that, yeah, in a sense, yeah, I mean, uh, forget about there being equal. Like one, is, one is vastly worse than the other. One is very much vastly worse than the other. Look what happens, right, when, when I kill somebody, for example, right, when I kill someone, what do I do? Right? What's the wrong there from our perspective as believers? Is it the physical act? Um, uh, this person's uh, body now no longer functioning as a biological entity. Right? Um, is that what I'm being um, punished for? It cannot be. It cannot be because that's not what, that part of... The whole event is not in my hands, right? Um, remember, like, what's the position of our scholars on um, our ability to create effects in the physical world? What's the standard position? Right? It's just this, that all you're able to do right, is make a choice. Allah presents choices to you. So this is, a this is in the mental realm. In your mind, moment by moment, a range of choices is presented to you. You incline toward one or the other, right? You, you say, no, I want to choose this glass of water there and not that bottle of beer there. You make that choice, and then the physical act of your arms reaching toward either the water or the beer is created by Allah. We don't have the power to create physical acts. Allah being a being of absolute power precludes that, right? Remember, we discussed this too throughout the year. His being a being of absolute power precludes the existence of other possessors of power to create physical events. So even when I kill somebody, actually what I'm being held to account for on the Day of Judgment, what I'm being punished for, whether in this life or, or the next, what I'm being held to account for is not so much the physical events actually. If Allah chooses to create those physical events subsequent to my making a certain choice or set of choices, know that he brings good out of that. He does so because all things um, considered, all things considered, that's the best possible thing to happen at that time. Remember our scholars say, uh, this is the best of all possible worlds, right? When Allah uh, chooses a certain event to occur, it's because that event is better than others in a certain sense. Okay. So it's not so much the physical event that I'm being held to account for, seeing as Allah's the one that chooses to create that. What I'm being held to account for is the choice that I made, that I make. Okay. On the day of judgment, you're going to be accountable for your entire set of choices. Now, of course, we talk like we're held to account for our acts. Like, like I, we could, of course, we're going to talk like this. You know, I drove here today. Right? I got in my car and I drove here. Every time I uh, have a conversation, sorry. Every week, I, I, I'm sure I put this on silent, but I still not figured this phone out. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. 
Now, of course, we can talk like that, right? For the, for the sake of economy of language, like if every single time I'm going to say a few words to Sadiq, if I was to have a you know long conversation about Qadr and divine power and so on, I'm really not going to achieve the objectives of, of conversation, am I? Right. Um, you know, Sadiq, what happened was um, I made the choice to get in my car and then Allah brought it about that all the particles of my body move and then Allah brought it about that all the particles of my body sat in the driver's seat of my car. Then I made the choice to start the ignition and so on and so on. And in the end, Allah brought it about that I get here. Um, but, you know, really all I did throughout that whole process was make a series of choices. You know, that's, of course, the metaphysical reality. And that we know in the background, of course, we know this. But when we talk, of course, we don't talk like that, you know, unless we're having a conversation like this. Generally, we say, yeah, look... Brother, I got in my car. Like, if you said to me, how did I get here? I say, well, I got in my car and I drove rather than catch the bus or whatever. Okay. Um, so, yeah, sure, we might talk like that. We might talk about us actually, you know, having physical effects in the world. But, of course, we ought to know full well. I mean, we know and we ought to know full well that really it's, it is Allah who causes the physical events. And that goes for when I commit a murder too. All right. That goes for when I steal something. I'd make the choice to steal, then Allah brings about all those physical events. Right? My reaching out to the, you know, to the um, display rack and grabbing the, you know, that, that item and putting it down my jacket, all of that Allah creates. <laughs> okay. I mean, like, is, is, am I really the one who moves every subatomic particle, right? right? Maintains their order, maintains their position, and as a collective, right, moves all of the relevant particles, right, in orderly ways. Um, you know, I don't control the laws of physics, <laughs> okay, or the laws of chemistry or anything else. Right? Um, that's because that's what it takes for physical events to occur. Yeah? You need to have all the laws in your hands. All right. You need to have all the particles in your hands, in other words. So we're not being held to account, really, in essence. We're not being held to account for that. What we're being held to account for is this Allah commanded that I not make that kind of choice. Yet... I go ahead and make that sort of a choice. I choose to take that sort of a thing to be a good thing. So again, this is something that's going on in my mind and in my heart. You know, I'm choosing to like a certain thing that Allah takes to be ugly. I'm choosing to make a choice which Allah said not to make. Allah said choose that, not that. Right? When it says in the Quran that Allah enjoins good and forbids evil, he's talking about the choices you make. All right. So really, that's what we're being held to account for. Okay? We're being held to account. That's the first point. We're being held to account for the choices that we make. Now, when I choose to commit a murder, what's going on there? What's so bad about that? Seems though it's nothing but a choice. What's so bad about that? Well, first of all, the main problem we've already discussed, it's that Allah said, don't do that. All right? Allah commanded us not to make those sorts of choices. It's clear, whether you're religious or not, it's clear that that particular sort of a choice is ugly, right? The choice to, like, like imagine this happened, right? A person went to uh, murder someone, they went to shoot or stab someone, but then Allah got in the way and, for example, um, you know, made the bullets uh, um, miss the target or whatever. You know, or um, someone got in the way, someone wearing a bulletproof vest got in the way, so that I don't end up 
achieving my objective, um, do we now exonerate that person? Oh, he's done nothing wrong? Of course not. We charge him with now what? Attempted murder. <laughs> yeah? All right, so we still take it that he's done something wrong. But why? Because he made a bad choice. And it doesn't matter that that choice did not get to um, be actuated in the physical world. Right. It did not, the choice did not um, see the light of day, in a sense. Right. He wanted the person to, to die. Um, he tried, he made that choice, he tried to bring it about, but it didn't come about. Still, he's done something quite ugly, hasn't he? Well, when I, when I choose to commit a murder, whether or not Allah... Whether or not Allah determines that he's going to enable that choice to have an effect in the physical world, all right? Whether or not, what I've done is this. I've, one, disobeyed Allah, right? And secondly, I've infringed upon the rights of that person. That person has a, a set of rights, okay? That person has the right to live, has the right not to be assaulted by me, has the right not to be accosted, has the right to be respected by me, and so on and so on, right? These are clear. Right? We don't need to really discuss these. Has a series of rights, all of which I infringe upon. And in doing so, what I also at the same time do is that I devalue that person. Right? I don't see that person as worthy of my respect. Not, they're not sufficiently worthy. Like it, if that person was someone that I did respect, like my mother or my father or my child or Sadiq, right? any of you brothers, someone that I, that I loved and respected like that, I probably wouldn't do that, right? You know, in general, in general, yeah, we don't um, harm the persons that we care about. Or, you know, if we do, it's only in the heat of the moment, you know, where we overlook the fact that we value these persons. Yeah, we get angry at them and, you know, we overlook that, hey, um, yeah, this is someone important to me and it shouldn't act in this way. Um, to the extent that we're cognizant of the value of a person, see, we don't infringe against that person. So when I do infringe against a person in that way, I'm devaluing them. Now, what do we do? Okay, so if that's what goes on when we murder someone, is that much different to when I commit uh, kufr? That's our question for now, okay? Is that a lot different to that? So now think about what happens when someone commits kufr. Again, they're doing this in a, in a way where they're culpable for it. Right? They do it quite, quite uh, knowingly and willingly. Um, uh, sometimes what they do is that uh, they might be able to say, yeah, I genuinely don't believe in God, but the only reason why they, don't genu they genuinely don't believe in him, in, in other words, they're not lying about, they're not lying to themselves about, believing in him. They genuinely don't believe in him, but the only reason why they've arrived at that conclusion right, is due to a process in which they've managed to fool themselves, right? It's psychologically quite possible. You can reason fallaciously and erroneously. You can play certain tricks, uh, um, vary the way in which you give weight to evidence and so on. It's a whole range of tricks, right, which the psychologist will tell you all day about. whole range of ways in which we can fool ourselves, even ourselves. So, you know, there are a couple of routes to this kufr, in other words, right? Um, yeah, there are a couple of routes to it. Well, the person who culpably, through whichever one of those routes, ends up not believing in Allah. In circumstances where it's their own fault. First of all, right, what they're doing is that they're disobeying in the same way that I disobeyed the command to um, not murder someone, uh, when I commit kufr, again I'm disobeying Allah in a sense. All right. um, 
Because what it is to commit kufr is this. It's to say that Allah does not exist. Therefore, every single thing in this universe that we normally attribute to Allah, now what we're doing is we're saying these things are no longer attributable to Allah. So every instance of order, every composite object, right? every group of particles combined to form some sort of a larger entity, every macroscopic event, every biological entity, every instance in which your needs are met, every instance in which you find food on your table, every instance in which you're sick and then you're healed of that sickness. We can go on like this all day and we'd never finish, right? Every single event in this universe is now no longer attributable to Allah. Because to believe in Allah is ipso facto. To believe that everything that occurs in this universe is created by Him. Everything that exists in this universe, every event that occurs in this universe is there for what reason? To make known certain aspects of divine beauty and perfection. Any given event in this universe, as we've discussed on countless occasions, any given event in this universe will be making known one aspect or other, or multiple aspects of divine beauty and perfection. Right? I eat a meal, for example, and Allah's name, Rezak, is being manifested there. Yeah? Um, uh, in my needs being met there, Allah's name, Rahman, is being manifested there. In my particular needs being met, Allah's name, Rahim, is manifested there. Uh, in the balance and order and proportion in that whole event in which I eat something, Allah's name Adl is manifested and so on. Again, I could go on like this all day and never finish. That's what the believer believes, but the moment you say Allah doesn't exist, now those things are not manifestations of divine beauty anymore. They're not there to make known uh, one or more of Allah's names and attributes anymore. Now what are they? They're things almost entirely lacking any value at all. Okay, um, if look at the look at the difference between the two worldviews. Right, if Allah exists, everything in the universe ends up having an infinite value. How so? They have an infinite value in virtue of their nexus or their relationship to Allah. Prime of faith, they seem like finite things, right? Here's a flower, it only exists for a short time. Right? It has a certain beauty, a certain smell, right? certain goodness, but then again, it only lasts for a few days or a few months or whatever, and then it dies. Um, then its particles disintegrate um, and become one with the earth again. It's just completely gone, right? Um, nonetheless, regardless of how short-lived it is, here uh, in the physical world, still it ends up having an infinite value, right? Because its value is not, its value is actually not its not its own. Right? Its value does not belong to it. It has value only insofar as it is something created by Allah to manifest His beauty, to make His beauty known by us. All right. So yeah, here's that flower. Allah creates it so that, for example, his name of Sani can be known in that experiential way. Right? Again, don't, don't ever think of knowing just in that intellectual sense. To know Allah is to experience, it's to experience the world. Every single event in which we're involved is for that purpose. Right? The event in which I hug my child is there for me to know some name or attribute of Allah. The event in which I go and study at university is there so that I can know some aspect. 
in that experiential sense so that I can know something about Allah's infinite beauty and perfection. Okay. Um, so yeah, that flower has exactly that same purpose. Uh, it's making known various aspects of divine beauty. Now, seeing as though Allah is an infinite being, he's an enduring being, right? He can't be a finite being, can he? Because if he were a finite being, then in virtue of that, he wouldn't be a god anymore. If you were a finite being, that would mean that he came into existence at a certain point in time. But then how would beings can't just pop into being uh, from nothing and by nothing. He would have had to have been created. Um, if a being is created, well, in virtue of that, it's not a god. Right? A god is a being that creates and is not created. So this is going to be an infinite being, an enduring being. If this being has beauty, it's got to have, as we've again shown in previous uh, um, arguments and discussions, this being's beauty has got to be necessary and essential, in which case it's got to be absolute. It's got to be, in other words, unblemished and perfect. So this flower, however finite and short-lived it is, it's pointing to and making known a being of infinite beauty and perfection. See, now it acquires an infinite value. Because if something gives me access to a being of infinite beauty, ah, now in virtue of that, it becomes infinitely valuable to me. But it, does, it cannot lay ownership to its own value. It has value only insofar uh, as it's created by Allah. It's thanks to Allah that it's able to exist or, or manifest any beauty. Right? Its beauty belongs wholly to Allah, in other words. That's what beings are if Allah exists. That's our view of the world. Now, look, look what a beautiful universe we live in now. Okay? Uh, everything that seemed, every physical event that seemed um, finite, um, sorrowful, of only limited value, um, or indeed even certain physical events that prime faces seem worrisome and ugly, now everything is beautiful. Everything is infinitely beautiful. But now if Allah does not exist, what are those beings? What is the explanation for the existence of these beings? Well, I mean, I don't know. Ask the atheist. I don't know how they'll explain it. Okay, I've thought about it for decades. There is no explanation. But at the very least, it's got to be this. It's got to be the plaything of chance. It can't be, yeah, it can't, it cannot have infinite value. It can only have value in this sense. It can have a subjective value. Right? Whatever value, whatever temporary value I can ascribe to it. So here I am, I'm a finite being and that's a finite flower. Right? One day I walk in the garden and I smell it and I derive some temporary benefit and utility from it. All right. That's the extent of its value. Right? Add up the value I get from it and Sadiq and Shabir and everyone else who smelt it or eaten it or done, engaged with it in whatever way. Okay. Add up all of that and you get some finite number. All right. Um, add up every instance of subjective value in the universe. For the whole duration of the universe, still you're going to have a, a finite number. Just a finite number. One day, either we're all going to die or the universe is going to die or both. I ask any cosmologist, right? Just the universe is not destined to live forever. One day, it's either going to collapse back in on itself or it's going to expand until every particle is almost infinitely distant from every other particle so that the universe is this almost infinitely diffuse gas. <laughs> so there, there is not a single composite object. There's nothing in other words. The universe, in the absence of Allah, can only have a finite value, a, a subjective value. It cannot have any objective value. It cannot have any... Uh, value over and above 
what pleasure or benefit you and I can get from it. But if Allah exists, that's not the case at all. If Allah exists, these things have an objective value, an infinite value in the manner described. Now, the person who, in that infinite act of compassion, Here's the thing. In an infinite act of compassion, Allah chooses to make his beauty known to beings, a being or a set of beings. He chooses to create you. He offers you the emanah, offers you the trust. Hey, do you agree to... Right, this is a standard view. I think Bedouzman might have a slightly different view, but you know, here there's this standard view in the religion. Um, most scholars are going to interpret the Quranic verse that you know Allah offered the... Uh, amana to the heavens and the earth and the mountains, but you know, uh, nobody accepted it other than you know, foolish man, right? I'm just Sadiq knows how to translate it better than I. Um, you know, uh, uh, most scholars interpret that, you know, quite literally. Everyone, every being was offered the amana, but only a small subset of all created beings accepted that. What was that emanah? It was to come down here to planet Earth and have free will and have ena and nafs, you know, uh, basically have all the faculties that are required in order for you to be examined and put through difficulty. Um, now, what was the gain by accepting the emanah? Well, an infinite gain, right? You could come to know a being of infinite beauty to an infinitely greater extent than had you not accepted the emanah, right? If you don't accept the emanah, you're just like an angelic being. You can neither rise nor fall, right, in terms of your rank, in terms of your closest to Allah. You gain your closest to Allah through, right, being examined, being put in uh, choice situations, uh, being put through uh, 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 in difficulty as well, right, uh, because, of course, choices that are easy to make, uh, anyone can make, right? It's the choices that are difficult to make that count more, right? Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, the beings that accepted the amana, they had that to gain. The beings that refused it, they thought, well, I'm not going to rise any higher, but at least I won't fall any lower. Okay. So, yeah, we human beings, we accepted the amana quite freely too, quite freely. There was no obligation. Right? We, uh, presumably, we were fully aware of what we were getting ourselves into. There was no trick involved. We accepted the amana, and then, lo and behold, one day, uh, the message of either Allah's existence or maybe Allah's existence plus the truth of Islam or whatever religion was um, the religion of that time, that was made known to you and you chose quite belligerently, quite freely and willingly to cover up that truth. Right? You saw some, your nafs saw some temporary, finite, uh, worthless benefit in denying it and you denied it. Okay. In denying that, in committing that mistake, what you do is that you reject an infinite, an infinite act of compassion by Allah. Because what Allah's doing, He's, he's offering that emanah to us. It's just that. It's an act of infinite compassion. He is a being of infinite beauty and perfection, and He wants to offer to you, to all of us, the opportunity to come to know and experience that beauty, and to be besotted by that beauty, to love that beauty, to be enamored of Him for all eternity. And to do so at an increasing rate, too. Right? Yeah, yeah, you, you increase, yeah. Here, at least in this realm, right? yeah, you, you can, if you make the right choices, you can increase in your knowledge of Allah, you know, uh, at an increasing rate. Right? Or at least, you know, you can trend upwards. 
That is an infinite good because you're coming to know the infinite beauty of an infinite being, right? the beauty and perfection of an infinite being. To reject that is therefore to reject an infinite good. So first of all, what you do when you commit that willing act of kufr is that, yeah, you know, you reject that. Like, I mean, think about it like this. It's sort of, maybe it seems a little bit, you know, um, abstract, right? But, like, just imagine this. <laughs> just imagine that uh, something as basic as this. You spend your whole morning, let's say, right? You spend your whole, brothers too, right? Not just the sisters, right? You spend your whole morning in the kitchen baking a cake for someone, all right? All morning, oh yeah, yeah. First, you had to go to the shops. You had to buy the ingredients. Yeah, you know, you had to put them together. Uh, you had to read. You had to look up a recipe online. But you went to all kinds of effort to bake this cake, um, just so that someone that you care about could enjoy its taste and its aroma, uh, um, and you know, uh, and its nutritional benefits and so on. You do all that, and then upon presenting it to the person, they say. Um, uh, oh, no, that's yuck, and just throws it back in your face. Or just eats a little bit and then throws the rest in the bin or eats in a very wasteful way. Or in some way or other, shows that they don't appreciate that um, thing, right? That act of compassion and generosity on your part. Right? How hurt would you be? How offended would you be? I mean, maybe many a relationship has ended over something like this. Right? Maybe many a person has been deeply, deeply hurt by something like this. Like, I know if I was to do that to my wife, I wouldn't hear the end of it. She'd be upset for days, weeks maybe. All right. So now, extrapolate from that, right? Now, and Allah is the highest similitude. Yeah? Allah is the highest similitude. In other words, right, um, the, uh, in Allah's case, right, you've got to basically, when you extrapolate from this example to Allah's case, right, you're going to basically multiply it exponentially. Right? Multiply it infinitely. It's going to be infinitely worse when you do this to Allah, in other words. Because what he's giving you is not merely a cake. Right? But he's giving you access to infinite beauty. Right? In a given cake, there's only some finite good, right? But look what Allah's offering you. He's offering you access to infinite beauty for all eternity. He's offering you infinite paradise, infinite good, even in this world. Okay. Um, and you're just throwing that cake back in Allah's face. That's your first crime. Then secondly, you're offending against the rights of every single one of those entities in the universe that we talked about. Every single entity is honourable in virtue of and is valuable in virtue of what? Its relationship with Allah. In the absence of that relationship, again, they, they I mean, if we're to be honest, like Dawkins once was, right? <laughs> If we're to be honest, we'll admit that actually there is no such thing as value, right? Value is just something that we've made up. Like we've evolved in such a way that we find, um, I don't know, um, uh, something like a theft lacking in value and something like an act of generosity valuable and good, right? But that's just a fluke of evolution, right? Had we evolved slightly differently, we would have had a different set of values or maybe no values, okay? Um, in the absence of God, that's the logical conclusion. Right? Things have no objective value, no real value. They only have what accidental value, what temporary, transitory, and subjective value we ascribe to them. And, you know, as scholars of, uh, you know, as philosophers have pointed out, you know, if the Nazis had have won the war, <laughs> as someone like Bill Craig's going to say, if the Nazis had have won the war right, and uh, exterminated uh, most of humanity, right? 
what were you going to have? What kind of world were you going to have? You were going to have a world where everyone believes that it's right to um, exterminate the Jew and the homosexual and you know the gypsy and the Muslim or whatever. Right? That was going to be the world that we live in. That was going to be the set of subjective values that we hold. Right? But it didn't turn out that way, and we hold this different set of values. That's the kind of world that we're faced with if God doesn't exist. Because in the absence of God, these things cannot have an objective value, as the atheists have uh, admitted, right? at least the honest ones. All right. So in quite, quite deliberately denying Allah's existence, right? and, hence, and hence the fact that uh, all the entities in the world are created beings, created by Allah, in denying that, you devalue every single entity in the universe, every subatomic particle, and every collection of subatomic particles, right? every segment of space, everything, every, anything that you can imagine, every bit of dark matter, <laughs> every bit of dark energy, everything, every event, every human being, you denigrate all of them. right? You view them all as having almost no value in any sense at all, compared to the situation when we do believe in God. So you trample on their rights. And then you trample on their rights in this second sense too. Look what honourable beings these are. Not only are they valuable in the sense that they're wholly owned by Allah, they're created by Allah, they're created by a being of infinite beauty, hence they're infinitely beautiful in that sense. Not only that, not only do you deny that, in addition you do this, right? Look at their honour. Look at the function that they um, perform. Their role, the, in, the created entities in this universe and the universe in its entirety. And, and, and that goes also for immaterial things too. All the immaterial things. Things like love and justice and all of that sort of stuff. Right? Everything that Allah has given a reality to in this universe. They all serve the same function. What, what was that function again? It's to make known Allah. Right? So now they're all dutiful Soldiers, in a sense, right? They all perform the duty of making Allah known to the beings that have got the faculties with which to know Him. In other words, beings like us and jinn, right? any any and 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 probably certain angelic beings too that have got you know intelligence and so on. All right. They have that very honourable duty, but in denying that Allah exists and therefore denying that they are created entities, therefore you deny that they perform that role. So again, like imagine you're uh, here. You are. Uh, you are a. Um, I don't know. Um, uh, you're a PhD student at Melbourne University. All right. uh, that that comes uh, together with right certain a certain status, certain honour, um, certain value, right? You know. But what if someone says no? Right. Despite the fact that uh, yeah, you've got the you've got the documents, you've got everything to show. I mean, it's utterly clear that you are a PhD student at Melbourne University. But someone says to you, right, looks you straight in the eye and says, no, you are not. You are a, um, uh, you're the person who puts the stickers on the oranges at Vic Market. All right? Um, uh, you know, we could rightly respond by saying, hey, what's wrong with that? <laughs> anyway, what's wrong with that? That's, that's honourable too, right? Maybe, hey, maybe that guy does that job to pay his way through you, right? Allah alim, right? Anyway. But the person, in any case, is denying something that's true about you. Right? You don't put the stickers on the oranges at all. What you do is that you, know, you study day and night to contribute to the corpus of human knowledge right, at Australia's best university. All right. 
or mate, at least the second best, right? The Monash guys will say at least the second best. <laughs> All right. So imagine how you'd feel. Put yourself in that position, right? Some, something so minor, so insignificant. Some idiot on the street just denies the obvious truth that you are a student at a certain university. Right? Of course, you'd be offended, you'd be hurt, you'd be upset, or at the very least, you'd think you're an idiot, mate. <laughs> All right. So now imagine, right? Now multiply that infinitely. Here you've got a person who right, is, is giving the worst lie to every single entity in the universe. Right? These beings are not PhD students at some you know, uh, university. These beings are obedient soldiers of Allah. They are all there and they follow his commands perfectly well. That's why we can describe these events through laws of physics and other laws. Because these beings, they never um, disobey. They are perfectly obedient soldiers of Allah. They act in the way that they're commanded to do, right? because in acting in that way, they are able to manifest certain divine names and attributes. Right? Just in the motions of a group of particles, right? In the coming together of three quarks, look, right? Allah's name of, for example, Hakim is manifested, and so on. Right? Allah's name of Qadir is manifested, right? Um, they are there to make known those names. And you are denying them that. You are, you are robbing them in that sense of that honour right? through your speech, through your state of, um, uh, through the choice that you make and the state of your heart. Okay? So now you commit a crime of infinite proportions right? in at least three different senses. So how now are the two situations different? Right? The case of the killer and the case of the um, deliberate uh, committer of kufr. <coughs> It's not really a lot different. The only difference being is that really one's crime is just far, far worse than the others. One's crime is really in respect of um, uh, a, small group of, a small group of entities, right? The, the victim, the victim's family, right? Let's say if I kill, if I kill a man, right? of course, I infringe against his rights. Uh, of course, first of all, I infringe against Allah. Then I infringe against that person and whoever knows that person, okay? And the community that benefits from it, yeah, a certain finite number of persons, but when I commit unbelief, I'm infringing against every single entity in this universe in the most heinous way. Because although it's a great, great honour to be a human being and to be someone's mother or father or friend or to be a member of a community, although these are great honours, right, it's an infinitely greater honour to be a wholly owned slave of Allah. And you deny that person that honour. You claim that, no, you don't have that position, you don't have that rank. You're not, no, Allah doesn't exist. So therefore, like it's like not, it's not saying to someone, man, you know, um, look, I'm the, I'm the son of uh, Say, Saib, right? My dad's name is Saib. Right? I'm the son of Saib. Imagine someone comes and says to me, no, there is no such Saib. There's no, no such person ever existed. So what do you mean? That's my dad, right? That's my dad. How dare you say my dad? Dad, my father doesn't exist, right? Well, now, yeah, and again, Allah is the highest similitude. Now imagine someone says that your Lord does not exist. And you're saying that to every single entity in this universe. So that's the crime that we commit when we commit kufr. All right. Um, so it's for that reason. If the majority of the scholars are right in saying that this guy who commits this offense abides forever in um, hell, it's because they've committed a crime of infinite proportion which deserves an infinitely enduring punishment. Right? Uh, yeah, there might be additional questions about whether or not that punishment abates or whether or not hell is eventually transformed. You know, those are interesting and important questions. Um, but 
One thing is for certain, right? Put those questions aside. One thing is for certain. No, none of our scholars are saying that these persons, these kafirs, right, are eventually going to go to paradise. Because right? paradise is not the place for them, right? Paradise has been created for beings that have not committed that sort of crime. It's like doing this. Hey, um, uh, who do we give the Nobel Prize to, right? Like one of our greatest honours, right? Who do we give the Nobel Prize to? The person who invents that vaccine, right? Or the person who solves that, you know, long-standing um, problem in science or whatever, right? Or writes that um, groundbreaking piece of literature, yeah? What if now, rather than give that prize to those persons, what we instead do is we pick our worst criminal, yeah? Hitler or, you know, Pol Pot or whoever, right? We pick our worst criminal and, yeah, we say, look, you know, um, hey, uh, you've been a naughty boy. What we'll do is we'll, um, we'll uh, incarcerate you for a finite time, but then after that, we'll come and give you the Nobel Prize. You all say to me, look, that guy didn't deserve that prize. That prize is for persons that have, you know, um, had certain achievements, right? Achieved certain things. Uh, yeah, wouldn't you all say that to me? Well, the exact same thing, except in, to an infinitely greater extent, the exact same thing applies in, in respect of the uh, you know, uh, person who wants the carfit to go from hell to paradise. Paradise is a place of reward, and it's Allah's prerogative to create such a place. If he wants to create a place for those that have done well, right, it logically follows, right? If it's for, if it's for those that have done well, who are chosen well, in difficult circumstances... Um, you cannot expect that those who have not done well are going to go there because it wasn't created for them. Now, Allah might choose to abate their punishment. That's another matter. But to put them in a place of reward is just wholly unacceptable. Uh, it's not something to ask of Allah. So, uh, you know, uh, the fact that they would abide in hell forever um, is entirely conformable with justice. In the end. Given everything we've said, you know, and given what kind of a place paradise is, it's entirely conformable with justice. Uh, says Bedouzman, and, and and I think he's right. So uh, that's it for me, guys. Um, I, I hope that in this, what I was hoping to do in this discussion is not just to respond to uh, the objector to infinite hell, but mainly to underline right, certain other things, like the, the kind of being that Allah is, the reason for which He has created us in this universe, and what what great compassion there is in that, um, what a bounty it is, like what an in as Bedouzman puts it, it is an indescribable honour to be a being created by Allah, to be a being here that's been plonked here on this planet and examined and given an opportunity to rise through the ranks of maturity because that rising through the ranks of maturity is tantamount to what? Just having an ever-increasing knowledge of the beauty and perfection of a being of infinite beauty. So it's an indescribable honour. So I was just hoping to underline those sorts of matters um, the purpose of our creation, sort of beings that we are, sort of being that Allah is. Because, um, again, that's the only way really to um, you know, highlight the justice in the unbelievers uh, going to hell forever rather than paradise. So, yeah. Uh, I invite you guys to say whatever you, you wish. <laughs> if you like. Otherwise, we'll end there and see you guys next year. <laughs> Come on, I'm sure you've got at least three hadiths <laughs> that are uh, relevant to our topic today <laughs> from your uh, voluminous memory.
Nothing comes to mind, right? Should we? Sisters, <laughs> nothing, nothing to add. All right, then we'll end there, inshallah. We'll end there and, um, yeah, hopefully uh, resume again uh, at some point uh, next year, maybe uh, late January, Feb, something like that, but we'll discuss it on the WhatsApp group, inshallah. Okay. Subhanaka la ilma lana illa ma'alamtana innaka antal aliman hakeem. Ala rasulina salawatu. Lillah al-Fatiha. Jazakallah khair. Thanks for coming, guys. Uh, appreciate your attention. Uh, not just today, but uh, uh, um, uh, all semester, all, all year. I really appreciate it. Uh, uh, thanks so much. Yeah, please. Not a hadith. Do you mind if I bring this a little closer to you? Uh, it's probably it's... not necessary to record it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, no, but alhamdulillah, I think um, there was great tawfiq in, in coming together this year and yeah. having these halakas done um, uh, with you, Miss. And, yeah, yeah, uh, I mean, Alhamdulillah, you've been doing it for a very long time. Um, uh, so may Allah reward you for your um, your consistent effort over there. And Inshallah, the uh, the growth in numbers that we've seen this year and the increase in benefit that people have been able to reap from these halakas is a sign of Allah's acceptance of uh, your sincerity and of everyone else who's um, who's come to these halakas. And um, I'm sure I speak for everyone not as eloquently as others would have said for themselves, but we've benefited greatly from these halaqas and from what you've shared uh, uh, from the teachings of uh, Sayyid Nawrasi uh, rahimahullah. So uh, for that, uh, and I won't take credit for, for, for this uh, initiative, this is from the uh, Magnanimous Sisters. Uh -huh. uh, we, we thought we would present to you a, sh a very small and humble oh, token man. of our okay. appreciation. <laughs> I really appreciate um, it, guys. Articulated in the artistry of Bray and her uh, friend. Oh, wow, hey, okay. And a, uh, a... a card that has uh, some, <laughs> some words of appreciation from those who attended the halakha. So, Jazakallah khair, may Allah reward you. And inshallah, this is sufficient to, to draw you next year and, and, yeah. and from, from what hey, to come, inshallah. <laughs> Look, if there's uh, anyone who's prepared to listen to me drone on for an hour, uh, once a week, uh, I'll definitely be here. So, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, look, I've always said, guys, that uh, it's very easy to speak for me. You know, I can, cause, because, uh, you know, as, as you all would be too, because uh, we're passionate about these issues, of course it's easy to talk about them. But at the end of a you know long working day or a long day in class to sit and listen to to, to someone like me who, who's just a nobody, you know, just li literally one of your peers, right, or, or, or lower, okay, to sit and listen to me, um, you know, is really quite humbling uh, for me. So I think that is a sign of your sincerity, um, more so than mine. So jazakallah um, khair to you guys, and thanks so much for this. Uh, I'm excited to see what it is actually. <laughs> Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> I'll wolf it down in a flash, don't worry. <laughs> uh, if those who want to, haven't read, 